Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Andrea Bowers. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles is presenting a retrospective of Bowers' work titled Andrea Bowers. The exhibition reveals how Bowers has combined her artistic practice with activism. Both focus on structural inequities, elevating and celebrating the work of activists trying to create a more just nation and world, and tying present-day struggles to historical movements such as the global labor movement. The show features about 60 works reflecting Bowers' use of mini-media, including drawing, installation, video, and sculpture. Andrea Bowers was curated by Connie Butler and Michael Darling. After debuting at the MCA Chicago, it's now on view at The Hammer through September 4th. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Books in association with the two museums. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $40 to $60. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, our 2019 conversation with Bowers' sometimes collaborator, Suzanne Lacey. But first, Andrea Bowers, after the break. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This summer, the Getty Center is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Since the center opened to the public in 1997, the expansive campus has welcomed millions of visitors from around the world who enjoy the stunning architecture designed by Richard Meyer, landscaped gardens and terraces, including the Central Garden, designed by artist Robert Irwin, and world-class paintings, photographs, sculpture, decorative arts, manuscripts, and drawings collections. You're invited to a summer of celebrations, including an outdoor concert series, community festivals, family fun, and a special audio tour highlighting the site's history. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. And we're back. Andrea Bowers, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Tyler, thank you for having me. I would like to start by talking about one of my favorite things, trees. As Hammer Chief Curator and Exhibition Co-Curator Connie Butler detailed in her wonderful, wonderful catalog essay, you've made a heck of a lot of work about the preservation of trees in old growth forests, copses, and you know other, other ways in which trees gather. 
And I think there's nothing in your in your work, in your oeuvre, that engages American art history more than your interest in trees. Because after all, American painters and photographers have been using trees to reference the idea of the American nation since early in the 19th century. Is any of your interest in making arboreal work, if you will, about the trees themselves? Or is it more about the communities and individuals and activism that has coalesced around them and been motivated by them? I think it's all those things. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a slogan, trees are the lungs of the earth. We can't live without trees. They're beautiful things, and it's something that we destroy constantly. And we're destroying, you know, if we lose the Amazon, we lose our planet. And we're quickly destroying all of the old, well, most of the old growth forests are gone. And basically all you see are stumps. So I'm really interested in the interrelatedness between all the creatures on the planet, basically. So, and then I, early on, I had gone to CalArts, which is in Valencia. I had just graduated and my mother had been diagnosed with brain cancer. And there was an activist named John Quigley sitting in a tree up by Valencia. It was a 400-year-old oak tree that they had named Old Glory. I Maybe it is L.A. County. So they wanted to cut that tree down for an as-yet unapproved housing division of, you know, sort of fancy urban sprawl. And the road widening had, for a road, to widen the road and the tree was in the way and the housing development hadn't even been approved and they were cutting the tree down. So a group of activists in that area reached out and John Quigley, who's a kind of international tree sitter, got in that tree and I think he was in that tree for over four months. I somehow equated my mom's, the thought of my mom dying was incomprehensible in that I compared somehow that became equated in my head to that tree. I couldn't imagine a 400-year-old tree dying or my mother dying, and I was just grasping with the idea of loss. And so as I drove up to San Luis Obispo to see my mom, I would often stop and just videotape. And I was really interested in the crowds that followed it, but very soon after I started doing this, I was handed a walkie-talkie, and it was John Quigley, the tree sitter. And he was talking to me about what I was doing, and I sort of felt like he would be maybe think I was taking advantage of him by documenting him and recording and taking pictures. And he, before I knew it, I was like sitting in the tree with him. He had me come up and we have been, you know, he and I have been collaborating ever since. In fact, he stayed at my house last night and because he did an event at the hammer with artists for Amazonia and there were leaders from the Amazon who were speaking last night, indigenous leaders. It was a phenomenal event. So that's like a lifelong experience. And he is also, he and another collaborator, Julia J. Poston, we all got arrested together. So we have a long history of, and actually at the event last night, the woman who was sitting next to me was our lawyer. When we got arrested. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, but like, it's a deep commitment. You know, I do believe in the interconnectivity, like that we are part of the earth, right? And like just 
loving trees. And if you sit in a tree, you know, and get arrested in a, in a, an untouched forest, you know, you pretty much can't help but notice the ecosystems that live off of that tree. I mean, when I got arrested, I never expected this to happen. There were four of us, two of us in each of the trees. It was, it was an urban wilderness area up in, you know, not far from me near Pasadena. Our, what's it called? Arcadia. Yeah. And it was a huge oak and sycamore growth. I don't know, something like, it was a forest of like over 500 trees. No. And, uh, I don't know. They were cutting it down because they wanted to fill it up with soot that they dredged out of the rivers and stuff, you know, our, our, yeah. But, uh, the four of us were in there, but like they cut, they ripped all the trees out around us. They left us in the tree and they knocked them down with bulldozers and they put them in wood chippers. Like it was shocking. And all of the wildlife climbed into the tree, flew into the tree with us it was the most shocking unexpected sad thing I've ever been through you know I'm not I wasn't expecting the emotional impact of having of what happened let me jump in to fill in some specifics around the things we're discussing John Quigley who you mentioned a moment ago is in the retrospective uh, if you will he is the focal the, the human focal point of your work Vieja Gloria from 2003. We'll have a link, if not an, M, M, if not an embed, of that work on uh, the show page on manpodcast.com. That's the work about the oak tree in Valencia. He's in other of your work, too, in a, a 2009 work, a two, 2013 work. And it in, interesting to hear you talk about how an experience with your mother informed, if not motivated, Vieja Gloria. That video installation opens with John Quigley talking about how he ended up in trees. And he starts by telling a story of how his mother, you know, another link, lived in a neighborhood in Washington, D.C., which that year was, I don't know, terrorized by a gunman known locally. I lived in the same neighborhood as the D.C. sniper had all of us in D.C. just looking for white vans everywhere. I remember that that summer. And the way Vieja Gloria begins is it offers what we're doing to trees as a metaphor for violence, or at least that's how I read it. And I wonder if establishing a metaphor for what we do to trees as being a metaphor for what we're doing to ourselves was kind of at the core of that project, if, that, if, if, if metaphor was a motivator there. Honestly, I think that... I wasn't, I don't think I, basically you're talking about a kind of like eco-feminism or, you know, like I wasn't thinking that complexly, Tyler, about that stuff. I was really interested in probably the relations of crowd behavior and stuff at that time. You know, uh, and I, then I think I, I think I was also like really interested in taking work that was about sort of like populist behavior to activist behavior and Mm. understanding, you know, thinking of myself as somewhat of an environmentalist, but really I think that project was where I learned about nonviolent civil disobedience and that, that, and like really started reading what the history of that was. These aren't things they teach in school, 
you know, so I was trying to, or at least in the public schools I went to in Ohio. So I think that I was, we didn't have the word decolonize, but I think I was trying to figure out alternative histories and just record activists that were doing important work, you know, and knowing that I was just one person, but trying my best to record actions and activists that were important to me in my lifetime that I was learning from. I don't want to impose my read on the work, but I hope listeners go and... Right, but I don't think I was totally, I don't think I was conscious yet the violence of the earth in relationship to the violence of ourselves. I was thinking about other things because I was coming out of like an interest in like punk rock and populist subculture movements, you know, as an alternative to kind of like, I don't know, the systems that were in power, the powerful. You know, I'm old, I'm an old fashioned object or, you know, crafts person. I, I love craft. So, you know, I'm always thinking about like art genres, like portraiture, still life, you know, history painting. So I think that I was thinking about those things too, but you're absolutely right. Vieja Gloria does live like a kind of history painting. I mean, I think both in kind of how it's shot and, and how it's presented and how there's a narrative arc across the work. Tyler, it's also not very well shot. I mean, I had really never hardly picked up a video camera before that. You know, I, I failed but, video. But history that. painting is always badly composed. I mean, history painting is always a very simple composition, so you get the one message of history. Dum, 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 dum. You know, so there are consistencies there. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I'm proud I documented that, but it wasn't, you know, it was very naively done. You know, I was still learning. I was just out of school. I was, you know, I was just learning how to use a camera. But I'm really proud that I have a record of that and that I did like the, there's an interview with John that flows in between it after he was out of the tree. And I'm really happy. That became a kind of style that I use throughout the work still today. You mentioned craft traditions. You use cardboard a lot, a whole lot, and it's something more than a support. It's integral to, you know, it's mounted on a wall and is integral to a work, you know, work such as 2013's I Am Nature, Champion International, Clear Cut, West Flank of the Cabinet Mountain Wilderness, which is a magic marker drawing of a clear cut on pieces of found cardboard. That was like, yeah, that's like a flyer that was in a, at a, a kind of like action, you know, that was like a political flyer. Yeah. And I blew it up and I thought it had a kind of relationship. It was like, I've been thinking a lot about mark making and the history of gestural mark making. And I've been thinking of for years about trying to make a kind of gestural mark that's feminist in some way, or the opposite of sort of a tradition of male subjectivity in art. So that, that kind of did both. It almost looked like a Pollock, you know, but it's also a clear cut. Well, yeah. And compositional really. I mean, is your or was your interest at the beginning in found cardboard related to your interest in trees and what happens to them? Yeah, I mean, it's also it's definitely that I think it functions in multiple ways. It's also that I spent a lot of time at a lot of the different Occupy movements and their use of cardboard signs as both political tools and the aesthetics and how they did it like they would all they would have hundreds of signs all laid together on the sidewalks or streets 
And I just thought it was so beautiful. I was like, I can never make art that's that stunning. And you can't just take them and put them in a gallery. So I was like, how can I use my skills and use those materials? Because also it's like, it's, you know, there's, I'll tell you more, but I, I just, I had then read, I was teaching in the public practice program with Suzanne Lacey at Otis and Suzanne's pedagogy has of course shifted my thinking entirely and really changed my life. And uh, I was reading Gregory Cholette. He wrote an article about the Occupy movement and this idea that everything has an aesthetic, you know, even if it's dialogical. And he said, for example, in relation to the Occupy movement, he said, beneath the digital, there is cardboard. And that like was in a way what he was talking about. And maybe I'm misunderstanding the article because sometimes articles stick with me and I change what they mean and my own subjectivity enters it. But for me, there's always an aesthetic, you know, there's always a material, there's always an aesthetic, you know, and it always needs to be considered. And just thinking about cardboard like that and thinking about how much cardboard comes in our lives. And, and also it's, not white paper, it's brown paper, just shifted everything in terms of representation. So I, I think about it a lot. And it's also like, makes this beautiful texture. Like, I think they're beautiful without anything on them. You've spoken in other interviews of wanting to often, not always resist the square grid of patriarchy. And the way you collage cardboard allows you to do that. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, still, there's still a little square, but you know, it's fun to play with. You know, I think that Rosalind Krauss, we, we used to have to read Rosalind Krauss in school back in the day, and she wrote that article about the grid. Do you remember that essay? I not only do I remember it, I disapprovingly cited it in a book I wrote. Because <laughs> so it was wrong, it was completely wrong. Whatever. I felt like wrong or maybe I didn't I remember I remember calling Tom Lawson and, and being like you 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 studied with Rosalind Krauss what she talking about can you explain it to me <laughs> and it was just but, factually um, it was factually and historically wrong but was written with great certainty and I remember reading that early in my art life thinking boy if I write with certainty I'd better be right because otherwise I will laugh I will get right. laughed at like I'm laughing at this can you ever be certain about ideas in art? Everything shifts all the time. But I, the, just the idea that the grid is this really kind of silencing form in a way, you know, like it, it, that it's a powerful thing that's been with us throughout modernism, that kind of, in, that kind of affected my thinking. So, you know, trying to shift out of that in some way. Henry Taylor is a really good friend and his playfulness with materials, because I was, you know, I made, I was at the time making these super tight photorealist drawings that take me hundreds and hundreds of hours and spending time in Henry's studio, like the courage he has in a kind of playfulness and gesture, I think. And also Henry uses cardboard sometimes, you know, and I think, I don't know. I remember he asked me to cut some text out in cardboard since I was hanging around. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really fun. Can I be a little more gestural and playful in my practice? You know, like you learn from your peers, you know, yeah, I don't know, like just that idea of like 
play. And I think the cardboard gave me like was an option to like, just on a kind of like personal artistic level to, to be more playful. There's a relationship between play and utter seriousness that creates attention that makes, that activates, I think all of your work in, in, in cardboard. One of the things you've done a lot in cardboard is make works that feature a woman as an allegory for something. In the French tradition, we would think of Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People. But in your work, it's, it's works like 2013's Memory of the Paris Commune, revised to equal work deserves equal pay from an illustration by Walter Crane. And I could cite like 10 other examples. So many, many nationalistic European art histories have within them traditions of women as prominent allegorical figures. But for the most part, that, that, that doesn't rest within the American tradition. Maybe one exception, one very bad John Gast painting. So what about woman as allegory appealed to you? Well, I think it was scale. You know, and I come out of, remember, I'm old. I come out of like the early 90s. And I was in New York in the late 80s. So I always come out of appropriation. But appropriation being this thing where you're either paying homage or you're critiquing. And I think that go, you know, that that goes on throughout all of those giant cardboards. I mean, now I'm making my own images too. I'm photographing women and then I'm drawing them or illustrating the photos digital, you know, but I'm changing them a lot, lot more. But I was, I was just collecting, I was thinking about the history of the representation of women and there were hardly any empowered women, particularly in political illustrations or paintings that I agreed with the politics, you know, kind of like <laughs> leftist. Like I was kind of looking for a politic and a powerment, empowerment of the representation of a woman or women, right, throughout, throughout history. And there, there just aren't many of those. They tend to exist in socialist and anarchist graphics, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And I was like kind of obsessed with the IWW. So I was finding those there. But for me, it was like, what if you take one of those little illustrations and you make it 10 or 10 feet tall? So it was the scale that was really interesting to me. One of the things that sits with me as you say that is your women in the context you just described are really big. And the kind of one time in the American tradition that this happens with women and representation in political movements is Sojourner Truth. And those works, those photographs are really small. They're smaller than your hand. There's this, you know, dichotomy, tension, advance, reference, upturning, upheaval, explosion, all of that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's really what I was thinking about. Like just, just grand, powerful women. <laughs> so, I mean, and, you know, it's shifted and become more nuanced as time goes on and different issues come in. But, you know, I think that's that still continues on in my practice. And it's fun, even with the videos, you know, I can make powerful activists, particularly femme activists, really big when I have the opportunity. And then eventually in 2016, with a work like Triumph of Labor, which might be your biggest cardboard piece? Maybe? I don't really know. I'm not really sure. But in that I work, mean, you let women and men finally coexist. And, you know, I, I, I 
don't know the origin of that graphic, but it's a work in which. Right. But the, it's led by a, a woman, a winged. It's you know, led by woman. a winged woman and women and men kind of rhyme equally across the composition. That's another Walter Crane image, I think. And it's May Day. So I had a series of photos. It's almost like an installation. So that piece kind of across from hundreds of pictures that I had taken at May Day pro uh, protest throughout Los Angeles. So that was a show at Suzanne Vilmetter. So the two are almost an install. They're really an installation together because there was a commentary on the issues of May Day from the time it was more like based on, you know, farming, right? Like that, that, what, that illustration is, is really like dealing with working on farms and stuff till to, you know, like say the last 10 years of May Days where it's very different issues, but still workers' rights are very important. I think when I started the workers' rights stuff, in a way, nobody really cared about workers' rights. And I, I was interested in kind of reviving these issues. And, you know, also I was working with the SEIU, unionizing the part-time faculty at Otis, which I'm still very involved with. And so I was really thinking a lot about the history of workers' rights, looking at what, late 1800s? So that's, I don't know, how many years ago is that? <laughs> well, you know, it's also a work that references alliance and allegiance among workers around the world in which the workers are primary over the nationalisms within which they operate or live, which in the context of a lot of your work is really relevant again, especially because you work so often in Los Angeles, which is a very international city two hours from a major international border. There's a real consistency of moment across that century plus. Yeah. And I was really influenced by you know, I was, I had to do a whole like learning of histories that I hadn't learned before. So right before that time period, I think, you know, in my late twenties and early thirties, I mean, that piece was done a little later, but I'd been really researching the IWW, the industrial workers of the world and that, the, the history of those activists. And that was of course a workers movement, right? So, uh, I think that I had to read a lot of those histories to get to a point where I could understand and also change my own thinking, which constantly goes on. I have to keep learning and growing. I mentioned earlier that generally you find ways of resisting the square grid of the patriarchy. I'm using the phrase again because you used it in a in an artist's uh, artist's choice, what did the Met call that? The artist project in your artist project uh, video for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and kind of the the exception to your refusal to snap to the grid is a work called Letters to an Army of Three. It's a work from two thousand five, and it's a work in which we'll have an image of it or images of it on manpodcast.com. You juxtapose letters written before nineteen seventy three, the Roe v. Wade year to the three Bay Area women who founded NARAL Pro-Choice America. And you kind of juxtapose the letters against decorative, often very bright sheets of decorative wrapping paper and then mount them on a wall. And it's a wall-spanning, dense installation of images, and you've done it in other works. You've done that in other works, too. But it is a grid. 
leading leading me to wonder why the grid is is okay there. I can't escape the grid, but that grid is filled <laughs> with flowers and stuff. I mean, it is. You know, and I'm not totally sure that I was. I mean, I still use Square. I mean, look, I it's not this issue of the grid is maybe was maybe more interesting to me when I was younger. It's not a dominant theme in my work, but it's still something I think about all the time. But I also think that, you know, the wrapping paper becomes, you know, it's very floral. It's very modern. I was trying to figure out a way. The piece is actually a book. And I was thinking how people at art exhibitions don't really look at books very much when they're at an opening. So I was thinking about what happens when, like, when you, how could I get people to read a lot of text and really intense text? So those, those letters come, the Army of Three were three women activists, Pat McGinnis, uh, Lana, Phelan. And Rowena Gurner. And Rowena Gurner, thanks. Sorry, I, I, I had a mental block there. And I had just visited Pat and what they had done, it was actually illegal to send the information that they were sending through the mail, but they were simply sending a list of doctors outside of the United States who would provide safe abortions. And mainly that was Mexico. It was also Japan, but it was mainly Mexico. And Pat particularly was traveling to Mexico to meet these doctors and check on them first because horrible things were happening for women who, you know, were trying to get abortions either. Not only were the doctors terrible and women would die, but women were also, instead of receiving an abortion, were being raped by the so-called doctors who weren't doctors at all. So Lana and Pat and Rowena were trying to create a list of doctors outside of the country. And I loved that it was like, also, like, instead of us always thinking about trying about people migrating to America, that these were Americans desperate to get into Mexico for medical care. You know, it was the whole thing was, you know, a complication in the way that most Americans think. And I liked that, you know, to throw a wrench into our mainstream thinking. I had visited Pat in Oakland. She had a house in Oakland to do an interview with Pat and Lana because Rowena was no longer alive. This was years ago. And I went to Pat's house because she had photos and she had, I don't know, we, we were doing a march. She was doing some, a peace march or something. And while I was there, I noticed there were stacks of papers that were wrapped in plastic bags, almost like, you know, like they weren't bookshelves, but she, there were stacks of them like against the walls and stuff. And I was like, Pat, what's in those? And she goes, oh, you'll be interested in this. And she opened them up and they were letters. They were thousands of letters of women who, and, and men, right? It was parents. It was boyfriends. It was husbands. It was, you know, women of all age, you know, it was people trying to find a place for safe abortions. And they answered every one of those letters. And so I said, Pat, if I give you, can I just give you some cash and can you Xerox those for me? And she had crossed out every person's name because she said some of these people might be alive. 
but I just, she gave me like, you know, she sent me through the mail because Pat always mailed things, a ton of those letters. And that actually became what I ended up using. I still haven't edited, edited that interview because I don't know, it was so all over. It's a really hard thing to edit and we're still working on it now, but I ended up making work about those letters. And so I just wanted everyone to read those letters because I thought more than statistics, the stories of people who had to, the traumas they had to face not having the right to a legal abortion was more compelling than anything else I could do. And so putting them, enlarging them so they were like poster size and putting them with wrapping paper that was sort of femme and modern was basically a kind of way to get people to read these. I was trying to trick them with aesthetics to spend, spend time with them. And then you kind of see this pretty wrapping paper and then you read the letters and then you're hit with a crazy emotional shift because they're so intense, these letters. And I just wanted people to understand because at that point, I think it was during Bush senior. No, maybe it was W you know, that, that we were at risk of losing abortion. And what's so tragic right now is we're showing it again. And we literally have, I believe lost our rights to abortion. And I, I just never thought that this work would be so relevant. And it's so tragic to me. I had always helped, hope that my work would become irrelevant because we would move in a more positive direction and make change. And it's pretty devastating to me. And I, I have a lot of anger. <laughs> yeah, it was first shown in Los Angeles 16 years ago in 2006. So it's back at sadly the right moment. Actually, some of it was first shown in Tijuana at Estacion Tijuana, Marcos Ramirez and Coco Gonzalez's space on the border. Oh, yeah. I didn't mean first first shown. I just meant I think it was the yeah, last show. in LA. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, first in LA in 16 years. And before I move on from this work, I mean, we'll have an image of it on, on the website, but I, I just want to fill in something you said by by noting that the wrapping paper is very, very, very brightly colored and the letters are black and white Xerox-ish. So you have the bright color juxtaposed against the black and white. Sorry, that's back in the day when we had Xerox poster machines and uh, the... Mimeographs. And, yeah, exactly. And the, the ink was carbon. Right. So it was archived, but we can't use those. They don't exist anymore. And when you go to use something like Xerox, which is such an awesome medium, it fades because it's now non-permanent inks. The things you learn as an artist. (laughs) Yeah. So like I've always loved Xerox culture and the way you could make art really, really inexpensively with, with Xerox machines. And now that's really shifted because you have to have a fancy archival printer now. So I miss that tradition. As we continue our kind of walk through, through major themes and parts of your practice, another big address or practice at the core of what you do and have done for a long time is education. The idea that education should be free and accessible and all that good stuff. And you've manifested that in a lot of ways. And a couple I wanted to bring up 
are projects slash performances you've done with Suzanne Lacey, former Man Podcast guest, in 2014 and 2016, first at the Drawing Center in New York, and then in 2016 at the Main Museum in Los Angeles when Allison Agston was running it. And so these performance slash projects slash educational sessions are detailed in the show and in the catalog, so I won't ask you to describe or detail them, but I'll set up my question, which it's taking me a while to get to, by saying that both projects were about a week long and were done in public, hence I'm calling them slash performances. And so what I'm trying to get to asking is this, what did you learn about education and its relationship to performance and performativity, if that's a word, that stayed in the work after those experiences with Suzanne Lacey? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't know so much. I mean, Suzanne is Suzanne takes from, I think, Judy Chicago's feminist practice, this idea of you know, working collaboratively and working within communities. And Suzanne's work is so serious and important in the way that she, in an extremely organized way, creates conversations that are art and are simultaneously pedagogical and political. And she embeds herself in communities for years and she has given her lifetime to these works. So, I mean, I have just been able to collaborate with her and teach with her, which was basically, I think for eight or nine years, I was fortunate to learn from her, right? Like every aspect of it was, was rethinking how I think about pedagogy, but those performances, I think also were about intergenerational feminism, you know, and that when I was younger, different generations of feminists kind of fought with each other or we were repeating, you know, we were having the same problems that the generations before us had. And it was because there wasn't a shared pedagogy between the generations. So Suzanne in such an amazing way, you know, guided all of us through kind of organizing endless intergenerational discussions I was also like, even though I taught Suzanne how to draw, she was totally really unwilling to learn how to draw. <laughs> so like I basically I was like, you know, performing <laughs> the whole time and like working, you know, I mean, you know, and she had me sleeping in tents with her. You know, there's I, that is the most amazing part of the project that you were sleeping in tents in the back of drawing center. Yeah. And she was like, I don't really want to learn how to draw. And if I don't draw what I want to draw, I'm not going to want to draw at all. You know, so she was obsessed. She went and got all of these crazy, like stuffed animals and craziness. So it was like a crazy scene around us, you know, and she, you know, we had our own, I mean, she's so detailed in like the aesthetics of the event and it's all filled with humor, you know, I think my generation lost its humor in a lot of ways. Her generation was really funny. And maybe one of the important things I've learned working with Suzanne is the importance of humor in art, even with very serious, serious subjects. And then, you know, I was exhausted during that main performance because I was scared to death. And Suzanne took my teaching very seriously. And I had to do a performance a day. 
I'm totally petrified to perform in a lot of ways. And then I was having like my students come, her students come because she was at USC at the time. We were open to the public. We were having like nightly events and I was still having to like create a performance a day that was open to the public and recorded. And it was like really vulnerable for me. But her lessons were so good. They were really simple, but really good. And I really felt like I got a sense of learning what performance in like the 70s in Los Angeles was all about. And there was a whole group of them. And I think this is like some of the ideas they were using to develop performance art. And so to go through those methodologies and those assignments was because sometimes I think you don't necessarily learn things from books that are written. Sometimes you got to learn it through the body, through the people that were doing it at the time, you know, and how lucky am I that I got to do that? We'll see if I perform in the future. But Suzanne said I was, I had potential. <laughs> <laughs> how, how generous of her. But, uh, but I mean, it was, it was really fun, really hard, really rewarding and powerful and really important conversations. I don't know, just awe-inspiring. And there were so many events, you know, the list of events. Oh, is, it's nuts. It's in, and it's daily. Nuts. I mean, it's just totally nuts. There's one day off in the whole in the whole series. It was an art marathon. I mean, like I can't even imagine. I know it took me forever just to create that list to put it in the catalog. And that's why I wanted that stuff in the catalog because you can't recreate that in, in a kind of survey show. But I thought it was really important some of these engaged events to be in, you know, the catalog in some way. The, there are also photographs of these some of these events in process in the catalog. Catalog's really good. The catalog is strongly recommended to listeners. I wanted to wrap up with a really big picture question. Your practice developed and grew mostly in a Los Angeles in which the art world was primarily oriented around the education sector and only secondary, secondarily back then or maybe tertiarily around the commercial sector. And LA has changed a lot in the last five or 10 years. And in, 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 in LA's art world, the commercial sector and globalized dealerships are as primary as they are now, or as they are in New York. And I wonder if that, don't want to say the word evolution because that implies advance, but if that transformation has had an impact on how you think about and make work. Oh goodness. I think I'm really old fashioned and still really believe in the importance of these Los Angeles schools, you know, because there's so many great teachers, but you know, I have a peer group and a group of mentors who all come from CalArts. So, you know, Charles Gaines and his wife, Roxana, are, you know, Charles is one of my biggest influences, and I have learned so much from him, and I really think the kind of conceptual basis of my practice comes from hours and hours and hours of talks and discussions with Charles. And then two of Charles' students, Rodney McMillan and Edgar Arsenault, are two of my dearest friends. And we are 
really tight and we have dinners and, you know, together, but also we have shared ideas forever. So I still have, you know, in the early days, I lived in the same neighborhood as like Mike Kelly and Diana Thader, you know, and it, it's always been around community. And this, these communities form from these different art schools. And I was invited in as a young artist and got the opportunity to talk to and learn from generations of artists before me. And that was an LA thing. I lived in New York before that. I didn't see that happening in New York. And I still, I don't want the commercialness of the art world to overpower the importance of that the community building that happens at the art schools. I'm trying to like keep that going and I still have my community. I went to a CalArts barbecue the other night and it was just amazing to see generations of folks. So I don't know that I have any power over the market that's going on here, but maybe I have power over keeping these communities of artists together in some little way. Cause that's kind of my philosophy in general. Like I can't, I think I get a lot of critiques about, well, you're not changing the world. I'm not trying to change the world by myself. I believe that I am part of a large group or groups of folks who have built alliances, who are, who are working together and fighting together for change. And I just am trying to do my part. You know, I really like, Last night, I provided silkscreen ribbons with slogans on them. It made the organization, it made the event more festive and fun. But ultimately, it was about indigenous leaders speaking about the Amazon. So, you know, I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to do my part. Andrea Bowers, thanks very much. <laughs> You're welcome. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego reopens in La Jolla on Saturday, April 9th, with the special exhibition Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s. The exhibition explores a transformative 10-year period in Saint-Fall's work when she embarked on two of her most significant series, the tears, or shooting paintings, and the exuberant sculptures of women she called nanas. Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s is co-curated and co-organized by Jill Dawsey. Senior Curator, Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and Michelle White, Senior Curator, the Menil Collection, Houston. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. 
For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, the work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bowers' experimentation with a wide range of mediums and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. Welcome back. Next up, a portion of my 2019 conversation with Suzanne Lacey. This conversation was recorded when the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts jointly presented the retrospective, Suzanne Lacey, We Are Here. It explored Lacey's roots in early conceptualism and her emergence as a pioneer of what has become known as social practice, the use of community organizing and media-focused strategies to prompt events and discussions. Suzanne Lacey, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks a lot, Tyler. I'm not sure I've ever pulled something out of an artist's acknowledgments at the beginning of an exhibition catalog before as a way of starting an interview. But there was a line in what you wrote there that seemed crucial and foundational. You wrote that your challenge as an artist is to, quote, navigate the tenuous line connecting my and our, which I think is a really great uh, eight or nine word summation of your practice. When and how did navigating that line become important to you? Well, you might say that that is kind of an important concept or relationship that I've had probably as long as I can remember. I've been aware that my perception of the way things are is not necessarily that of other people. And that's, that, you know, sounds like a sim- simple statement, but for me, it's quite profound that I could like watch Fox News and then flip over to MSNBC and t- see two very different perceptions of reality operating. So the relationship between my and our is not only between me, my perspective, and another perspective, but it also reflects the distance or the separation between an individual perspective and that formed by a group. And in my case, how perceptions are formed by groups is sort of critical underpinning of my work. Was there an experience in school or after school that led you to that idea, pointed you in that direction? I would say just the broadening understanding of cultural differences between groups uh, such as gendered groups and racial groups which and religious groups, which were me kind of foundational in the 50s. I avidly consumed Life magazine and saw both lynchings and Holocaust reports. And that sort of very early established a sensibility that for some reasons I couldn't quite understand, people were treated and seen dramatically differently. So I would say that, you know, my early experiences of social injustice, which were not named as such at that time, were kind of foundational to my later thinking. Well, one of the ideas at the heart of your work is that art can motivate and inform action, public action. And of course, for, for, for reasons related to my own professional career, this is an idea with which I'm enormously sympathetic. <laughs> it's also not something that the vast majority of art students are taught is something that's possible. 
who taught it to you or where did you pick it up and how did how did it seem like a possibility? You know, probably I entered serious consideration of professional art through feminist art and Judy Chicago. But I do think that it goes back further for me. I think that one one's actions can create social change, that one has the obligation of citizenship, which is to try to make things what, in your perception at least, is better for other people. So I don't distinguish art action from other forms of action, save for conversations on aesthetics. And I think as an artist, I could run for governor or I could make an artwork and they would have different kinds of impacts and different sort of scales of impact, but they would both be oriented toward changing, you know, changing things for people. Was that an idea you came to mostly through Judy Chicago or was there maybe something early in your practice? No, no, there would have been the civil rights movement. There would have been many things. I mean, even I, I can't even remember a time when I didn't think about some form of, you know, things aren't fair for this group or these people, or why is that animal, you know, when I was five, why is that cat homeless? You know what I mean? It's just, some people I think are born with a, or, or, or it's engendered. And I think about this a lot because when you're thinking about art and social change, you want to know how change happens. How does change in perception happen? And from perception, does change in action happen? So so for me, I started with, how do you change perception? Your early work in, in the early 1970s, really for the first half decade at least, really, was built around women's bodies and how society and men in particular acted on women's bodies. I think with, with, with the hindsight of, you know, 40 years of art history, it's easy to look back and see why that was an interest of feminist practice. But feminist practice still had to start for that to happen. What made the body something that interested you as, as a subject? Well, I live in one to begin with. Secondly, I was a pre-med student, so I've had several years of both biology and psychology studies and, you know, work in and around hospitals and so on. So how, how, how people live in their bodies and, you know, leads pretty naturally to how bodies are treated. And those ideas that did come out of feminism, or let's say came into focus around feminism. So if you look at the way black bodies are also you know, the focus on the body and the experience of the body has emerged recently uh, in the last couple of decades politically. The same thing was happening with women and women's bodies in the 60s and 70s. Now, that collided with a movement in art, which I also was sort of at the beginning of, and that is performance art, which in gen- in general was a focus on the artist's, artist's body as both subject and object, if, as it were, of, you know, the work. So, so that the, the performance artists began to look at their own body in much the same way doctors, you know, have a certain distance from their own bodies or have been reported to have that. And so that, that I think, all of that together emerged as, in my case, a consciousness about bodies as I first began to make art, and in my body in particular. 
It's one of those rare things in American art history that artists on the East Coast and artists on the West Coast were were doing that were similar. Uh, I mean, you know, you don't you don't you don't have color field painting on the West Coast, but you do on the East Coast, and and on both coasts, feminist artists were were exploring performance built around the body. Yeah, but it wasn't just feminist. If you look at Vito Acconci, no, it wasn't. But yeah. So so and the other place, I mean, that was actually taking place taking place. Some argue more or less globally, certainly in Japan with the Gutai group, and in you know Europe, there was a lot of focus. People like Gina Pane working on embodiment issues as performance art, and it's all happening around the same decade. And, and you even have an artist like Bastian Otter who who comes from Northern Europe to L.A. and and he's working on on uh, the body and its ephemerality, sort of. Your early work substantially, repeatedly addresses sexual violence and rape. How much of that was a response to the culture around you, contemporary culture? And, and how much, if any of it, was your pointedly, intentionally looking at how and thinking about how centuries of art had treated rape as de rigueur and that the contemporary culture had been informed by that art to some extent and continued it? I think that, that the, the art history affected me very little, ultimately. I used it as demonstration points. But I came out of a decidedly, you know, kind of mass cultural engagement. I'm interested in the way images operate in in a scale outside of that of the art world itself, which those paintings would have been relegated to, although they certainly would express a general cultural attitude. I was motivated by, one, a pervasive experience of fear or caution that I had since I was a child. I've never experienced direct sexual violence, but I found that to be enraging, you know, the attacks on the body, whether through lynching or through the Holocaust or through, you know, torture in South and Central America or through rape. I I align those things as the destruction of the body, whoever's body, for sociopolitical reasons. And so I entered that field because, you know, frankly, it the the public culture in 1970 and 72 when I first began this work, public culture thought rape was a joke. I mean, you only found, you know, I would have arguments in grad school with other artists about why I should appreciate Peckinpah's Straw Dogs because of its, you know, formal innovations. And all I could see was a really glorified rape. So I think that tension between how an image operates, which is a concern of artists, and how it operates to perpetuate cultural attitudes or sociopolitical attitudes is is something that I'm very interested in. And it's, it's really a kind of throughfare in looking at the way I work. How does an image operate formally for the art world? How does it, it embody those kinds of concepts that are that at least I'm interested in investigating? And how does it relate to a larger audience? That's a, sometimes a hard line to, to walk. In these same years, in the early to mid-70s, you're beginning to use animal carcasses in, in your work, especially, particularly lamb carcasses. There's, there's works like Lamb Construction from 1973, in which you, you reconstructed a lamb carcass, maps from 1973, 
and and you continue although maybe with less frequency than in the mid 70s to use lambs elsewhere in your career what about animal carcasses made them a useful visual tactile focus for work you know a lamb carcass is roughly the size of my body it's a little smaller but it kind of depends upon the age and whether it's a a sheep or a lamb and so on but i think it's both it has some religious overtones although i'm not normally using those directly but i think it is you know a stand in for a body the body and in the case of most of that those works you know the lamb didn't have a head although in some like learn where the meat comes from it does but it's a kind of a disembodied body a body that we can look at not only more abstractly, but more graphically and more viscerally. If you think about Stan Brackage's work, and even artists like Keen Holtz and Terry Allen, there was and is, continues to be, a kind of strain of art, particularly performative art, that is, is very curious about a consciousness existing inside of a body that then acts in the world. So that's sort of the trajectory for me. Why are we here, in a sense? It's, I guess, a, a religious question or a spiritual question. Well, speaking of religious questions, it's pretty hard to see lambs in art and not think of how lambs serve as stand-ins for the body of Christ in centuries of Catholic art. Were you leaning on that a bit? Not intentionally. I am not a Catholic. I was a Christian, but the body of Christ was, you know, not a particularly present metaphor. My experience with Christianity more had to do with ethics and service. But I think uh, unconsciously that would be there. But the other, I would say, slight misinterpretation of my work has to do with vegetarianism, and I am not a vegetarian. So I think more specifically that lamb carcass stands for a human carcass devoid of consciousness. And as a pre-med student, of course, I did assist in a couple of operations and, you know, would have ex been exposed to autopsies and so on. So, so I think it's very much flesh that, you know, has moved over the border uh, from life to death. In this period of your career in the 70s, you are often engaging emergent conceptual practice, uh, to use a horrible art historical phrase. And quite often your work, such as the anatomy lessons works, are, are slyly funny. Anatomy lesson number three has kind of pokes fun at a, at a famous John Baldessari work. In anatomy lesson one, number one, chickens coming home to roost for Rose Mountain and Pauline, a 1976 work, you're making connections between the leg of a chicken, which you're eating, and, and your leg. <laughs> I, I think quite often we forget how, how funny early conceptualism was. So what about the sense of humor that was innate to early conceptualism interested you and, and, and seemed like a good tool, if you will, for, for your focuses, your foci? I probably didn't think about it as a tool per se. I am somebody that's very interested in and attracted to humor. I think to find someone who is funny generally to me overlooks a lot of other faults in my friendship networks. And so I think it would naturally occur to me to be slightly ironic 
in fact, about a lot of work. I did a series called Vagina Dentata that actually I inserted false teeth into my vagina and took photos of it. And I thought that that was pretty funny, although it might strike horror in some hearts. But it, it, it for me, is a kind of a poking of fun at a lot of the mythologies about gender. So I would say that the insertion of humor is in a lot of my work that people often don't read as humor. I remember talking to Martha Rossler once, and she was saying she had just been to London and working with a group of younger artists around semiotics of the kitchen, her videotape. And she said it was it was really interesting to her that they thought she was super serious. And when I first saw that tape, I laughed, you know, through the whole thing. I think some people likewise don't quite know or understand how to perceive the humor in Learn Where the Meat Comes From, my video of around that same era. And I think it's a kind of hysterical piece, odd, oddly hysterical, and is very much meant to be both funny and humorous. I mean, excuse me, funny and serious at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I, I wonder this all the time, but I guess one reason we forget how funny early conceptualism was and was meant to be is that kind of third generation commercialized conceptualism is dour. <laughs> yeah, and I also think that conceptualism is, I mean, that's even in and of itself an interesting idea because I've been told by some curators that they actually don't see me as a conceptual artist. And uh, that's because con- conceptualism as it became, as it evolved and became defined, was really equated more with language art or people like Zollowit, which is much more formal and serious. And I really come more out of the strain of conceptualism that you know, might identify with Dadaism. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Baldessari too, for that matter, right? I mean, that... that. Yeah, right. And even Capro, even Capro was slightly distanced and ironic, although I didn't think he had laugh-out-loud humor. He definitely was kind of distanced in a light and humorous way from a lot of things that he talked about and did. Yes, the word sly comes to mind. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Humor stays in your work late later in the 1870s and as we get into the early 80s in works you made about the Mona Lisa, the famous painting, famous portrait of a woman painted by a man. In one of those Mona Lisa works, you and Arlene Raven poked fun at the paint by numbers uh, phenomenon or subphenomenon. In another, you performed in a booth into which people could look. That was at SF MoMA in your painting, paint by number Mona Lisa. I get that Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa is really famous, but what about engaging it interested you and sustained your interest over so many performances and addresses? Uh, it was a direct address to uh, comments that I consistently got in the early days of performance art, which is, oh, you're an artist, what do you do? Or actually it was, oh, you're an artist, what do you paint? And I, my major concern wasn't gender, Mona Lisa, by uh, a male artist. It was... It was the idea of the most iconic Western image that I could find. In a sense, that piece is very much out of my working class background. You know, Mona Lisa is considered art. And for me to emulate Mona Lisa, to emulate the painting of Mona Lisa, the creation of Mona Lisa, was to put myself in the atelier tradition. You know, I would learn how to paint like a man 
in a tradition of visual art that focused on painting. But in fact, I am a performance artist, which is a very new and emergent form of work. So that's what that work was about for me. And again, irony was uh, obviously quite present. There's this moment in your work after the Mona Lisa works where you go from doing a number of things that are in a way solitary or nearly solitary. I mean, a booth in a museum is pretty solitary. And then the work turns toward large attention-earning media coverage targeting group actions. There's some overlap here, but but in general that. Was there an impetus for going group-sized, if you will? I think that it's not quite as distinct time-wise as you would make it, that I would almost see it as two parallel tracks, one emerging out of a visual arts educational tradition, which is, you know, the artist in her studio working or in her body, but working in a more solitary fashion, and the other trajectory of social activism and calling attention to social issues. I used to So in a sense, it refers back to the my and our interface that that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation. My is me, the performance artist, my body, and our is the collective body to which I belong. And so for me, those, those are two sites of work that I'm constantly thinking about how do you bridge. In my later work, it becomes less prominent as I decenter myself, which is probably more of an, a function of community organizing on the one hand and directing on the other. But I began working with other groups quite early and a lot through, for example, my teaching practice at the Feminist Studio Workshop. I would actually give an, an exercise to students where they would think about and create a character for themselves and perform that. And then they would go out into the world and kind of try to understand the implications of that character in a social context and perform or demonstrate that through their work. And then further, they would attempt to create a relationship with somebody that actually embodied that social condition. And focus or highlight on that work. And if you look at those themes of my experience, perception, empathy, understanding, learning process into the social environment in which I and others operate and the mutual learning that can take place, and then how do I learn from the other or the person that has an experience defined as different than mine, and, and its social situation. Uh, that's kind of the trajectory for me that I've followed throughout my art career. So while I don't have, you know, actual instances of that in front of me, I would say that my exercises and works at the Feminist Studio Workshop embodied that idea of working with others much earlier on than when it starts appearing in my work. As part of that turn toward large actions and concurrent with it, you and Leslie Labowitz created Ariadne, which was a uh, feminist coalitions-oriented organization that did many of the things that a traditional 501c3 does. 
what were some of the ideas and interests you thought that art could bring to, could lend to organizing? Well, let me first say that Ariadne actually grew out of mine and Leslie's work together in three weeks in May and in Mourning and in Rage. And having done the actual artworks, we began to understand that the, the kind of protocols that we used, the ideas we were formulating in constructing the works could be seen in a larger, to, to operate in a larger sphere, and that is, you know, more the public sphere, which was why we created Ariadne. In a sense, it was a conceptual grouping of work that had been done and that directed us to kinds of work that we might do in the future. Community organizing has a set of ideas in it that were evolved by people such as Sololinsky and the Civil Rights Movement and the Highlander Institute in Appalachia. And I was influenced, given the era I grew up in and my political concerns, I was influenced by all of those, the farm workers organizing by Cesar Chavez. So, you know, part of that process, one of the central parts of it is to mobilize people through deep listening, engage them in terms of what they perceive to be their own interests, and evolve actions based on their interests as it relates to larger social concerns. With feminist organizing, one of the contradictions with classical Alinsky organizing was that it's pretty hard to organize a community around, for example, wife abuse or family abuse. Because when you get a group of mixed gender people together, they're going to talk about their areas of perceived need, and it will never be those more hidden gendered issues like sexual violence. So feminist introduced into the organizing trajectory the idea of organizing specifically around gendered issues. And that would mean, given that era, rape, or sexual abuse was pretty hidden. It was pretty. It, it was not a. It was not a, a, a an issue that operated at all, except perhaps pornographically, in media or connected with really, really graphic crime. Uh, it was there was a kind of an undercurrent that you discovered in consciousness raising groups by listening to women in consciousness raising groups. These these issues slowly emerged and you would organize around these specific issues. So the other part of that is organizing was deeply connected to consciousness raising in the feminist movement in the 70s. A lot of the ideas and issues that were worked on came out of consciousness raising, which is each woman telling her experience in her own terms. And as those issues surfaced, forms of organizing took place much like the early labor movement where women entered the labor movement in the 1900s and introduced parties and birthday celebrations and festivals and pageants as ways of mobilizing labor. So feminists in the 70s used all of those techniques and more to bring together women to surface concerns, which would then get presented to the larger culture through mass media often. So that, that's basically how organizing was 
incorporated into these art-making strategies. One of the things that Ariadne instigated, or at least was concurrent with, was a sizing up of the projects you took on. So from this point forward in Los Angeles and in the decades to come, increasingly all over the world, you would focus on projects that involved dozens or hundreds of people. I imagine that scale was intentional in part of the point, but sometimes I look at how relatively small the number of organizers you were or you and your collaborators were and wonder. How crucial was scale to to your projects uh, from you know, 77, 78 on? I think scale is, in the case of Three Weeks in May, was a direct result of the need to operate within the public media sphere. It was apparent that the misconceptions about violence against women were largely perpetrated through media. And if you think about the incidences of violent rape that started showing up in the, you know, late 60s and 70s and the emergence of pornography into mainstream media, even into the art world by some early practitioners, you know, at that moment, there was a kind of a, a kind of an emergent sensibility that it felt very imperative to challenge. And so that the scale of the work in three weeks in May was for me the first traumatic, you know, experience of going public in in a bigger way. And it felt like the right thing to do, the public placement of the map, the alignment with City Hall. Our first press conference was coincident. It was, in fact, in the city attorney's office, and he was under media scrutiny for uh, shredding files, police files. And so when we called a press conference in his office to talk about the project, pretty much every camera in town showed up. And then kind of strangely and contradictorily, they ignored him and focused on our project. So it, it became apparent that a way to reach people outside the art world and to influence public opinion was to scale up in terms of media. Now, the issue of lots of bodies in space, which you see in a project like Crystal Quilt or Whisper the Waves the Wind, where Crystal Quilt, there's 400 performers. You see that, that for me, the aesthetic of lots of people in space and how they operate within that is something, as an artist, I'm quite drawn to that's pretty much outside the scope of politics, but is, you know, a visual pleasure. Eisenstein's, the filmmaker's work, The Storming of the Winter Palace by the Russian constructivists, those artworks that, Sebastian Salgado's work, you know, in the copper mines in South America, those are are also visually very, very compelling to me. And, And it may be linked in some deep way to, you know, to my politics, but they are also things that I enjoy looking at, thinking about, and organizing. It's worth mentioning that you extended this interest in scale and putting scale on view with with, with, with the archives generated by these projects. In 2007, you and Leslie Labowitz made a work called The Performing Archive Restricted Access. It was exhibited at the Yerba Buena Center the next year in which the the volume of testimony and material generated by the projects is is presented as 
as, as, as a voluminous unit, if you will. That's a kind of an ironic commentary as well. You know, women's archives we discovered from my generation were often kept in basements and garages. And the focus on archival material that was emerging in the art world in the early 2000s was sort of aligned with the idea of exposing the archive, exposing the history behind something. And in the case of that project, it started as an examination of how, in particular, young women artists born in the era that that work was created had their ideas about that work reformulated through its transmission art historically when they went to school. So constantly we found with the young women who went through our archives, as we videotaped them, we found that they discovered things direct from the archive that they had never been taught and that even contradicted some of the things they were taught. You know, at around this time, so in in, in the early 1980s, a lot of your work focuses on or is built around or includes conversation and enabling conversation as a form of practice. One example is Whisper the Waves, the Wind from 1983, in which you organized uh, 154 women uh, over the age of 65 to get together on two beaches in La Jolla uh, in North County, San Diego, to discuss their lives around, around tables. And then on the bluffs up above, a thousand people watched them but could not hear them. Two questions. First, why did concert conversation interest you and how did you come to embrace enabling it as as practice? Well, conversation, I mean, that goes back to your, I guess, really original comment on the my and the hour and the space between. Between me and you, that kind of fundamental template is also the space when you multiply it over and over between lots of me's and you's becomes a social space. So conversations, I found, were quite moving, could be quite moving. When people reveal whether it's, you know, I've sat in train stations in Germany and had really heartfelt conversations with a single person, and then in consciousness-raising groups where you go around the circle and you keep getting deeper and deeper into a level of both individual experience that ultimately has moments where the experiences shared, those to me can be aesthetically very moving. And I am I guess you, in order to understand that, you sort of have to take a leap away from visual art into theater. So we don't question on the stage in theater that something can be quite beautiful and moving in terms of the way it's constructed linguistically or the emotion with which it's delivered. But a moment on theater, you would you would imagine would be, you would understand it as aesthetics, you would understand it as conversation simultaneously. I find that in real life doesn't always happen, doesn't ordinarily happen, but can happen. And I see my role as a performance, you know, a director is to kind of create a platform where we can get deeper and deeper and deeper into that in this you know, individual experience, which ultimately creates a kind of a a political narrative made up of individual experiences. In the case of Whisper the Waves the Wind, actually, you could hear them. You could hear them in a pre-constructed conversation by many of the same women 
through the artist Susan Stone. So as you stood on, on, the, on the bluff looking down, you could hear a pre-recorded conversation on the same issues the women were speaking about below. And there's a lot of aesthetic reasons I did that, but one of them was also technical, that I knew that you could not capture the live sound of those tables simultaneously and pipe them up to the cliff in a way that would be very, you know, very powerful and not without, at that moment in time, super technical difficulties. So so you could hear them, but you heard them speaking prior to the actual event. And then in that performance, you were able at the end to walk down and to, to speak or listen directly to them at their tables. So that kind of construction of conversation operates different in different pieces, but it's always an aspect of the work. In the last decade or so, you have started working in California's Central Valley. You grew up there. You grew up in Wasco at the southern end of the valley. As, as listeners may know, the valley is overwhelmingly agricultural. It's dominated by industrial agriculture and absentee corporate owners. Indeed, it is where American industrial agriculture was invented. Why did you want to go back to the valley and, and do projects there? I would say that that in in a sense, my desire to go back to the valley came directly out of five years of working in Appalachia in a small eastern Kentucky town and understanding not only the links with my own father, who was from that region, and understanding him better. Now he, still living in the San Joaquin Valley at the time, along with my mother, you know, experienced very similar kinds of issues. And the valley, the Central Valley, does experience, it's kind of the flat version of Appalachia, or it's called that in some, you know, in some uh, literature. So I, I'm interested in the poverty, most mostly. It is a racially diverse, but you know, more or less integrated in terms of Mexican and white U.S. born, but there's Portuguese, there's, you know, there's a lot of different ethnicities in the Central Valley. I think there's still a major barrier between black and white in that, in that region. But the, so all of the issues that I work on are prevalent there. But the one issue that is most prevalent for me is poverty. It's a very impoverished area. It's an area where the health concerns, the environmental quality, the education, those are all, you know, kind of key markers of poverty. And they exist in Appalachia in different ways. The environmental toxins there, like the environmental toxins in the Samokin Valley. I would say that that work is the least developed of my work, and I'm... The reason I'm interested in talking to you about your work is that I, I understand intuitively, obviously, that place. And by the way, it's linked to what's happening politically in our country, because people that live in the San Joaquin Valley are, are pretty right wing. I mean, not all of them, of course, but as a culture, it, it sort of defies the, the myth that California is a liberal state. Those are people that vote for Trump. Devin Nunes is is their congressperson. And I find those issues 
you know, dramatically problematic. Why does my family vote for Trump when they, I don't, I don't know that they do specifically, but why do they espouse conservative right-wing politics when they don't have any money, you know, when they live in an environment that is devastated by, like you say, large-scale agricultural concerns? It, you know, the Appalachia comparison is is so apt because in Appalachia, corporate degraders and exploiters of the land in which their employees live have somehow convinced those workers of the workers' fealty to the company that pays them and not very much, um, which is exactly what's happened in, in the California Central Valley, where absentee owners have done the same thing, even as they degrade, uh, remake, and, and starve the landscape. It's, it's, it's a place that was, starting in the 1880s, uh, entirely built for agriculture and uh, the exploitation of water resources in a way that continues to this day. A lot of the pollution is certainly from the oil industry in the southern end of the valley, but a lot of it is also from dust and yeah, all from farming, all from the way corporate agriculture, uh, large-scale agriculture is done. Suzanne Lacey, thanks so much. Okay, great. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.